You're listening to the Sex with Dr. Jess podcast. Sex and relationship advice you can use tonight. Welcome to the Sex with Dr. Jess podcast. I'm your co-host, Brandon Ware. And I'm Jess O'Reilly, your friendly neighborhood sexologist. Before we get started, I want to say a big thank you to Desire Resorts and Cruises for their ongoing support of our little podcast here. You can find out more about Desire and their clothing optional cruises and resorts at Desire Experience. Joining us today is Julie Peters, the author of Want, Eight Steps to Recovering Desire, Passion, and Pleasure After Sexual Assault. Thank you for being here. Thank you so much for having me. Can you tell us a little bit about your journey that led to writing this book? Absolutely, yeah. So um, I was assaulted um, quite a few years ago now um, in a sort of a date rape kind of context. It was someone that um, that I knew really well and trusted, a good friend. Um, and I just kind of went through this journey afterwards where um, I found that my, like, my life had just sort of lost its color. Um, and it took me a long time to kind of recognize what was happening and that I had experienced a trauma essentially. And one of the questions that I really had as I was going through that was like, where is my sexual desire? Like what happened to my body? Why don't I feel like I want to feel connected with anybody in that way? And so, you know, I, I did some research, like I would sort of late night Google, like, what do you do if like you've been assaulted and you don't want to have sex? Like, what is it? And the best advice I could get at the time was just, don't until you want to, which I thought was really, I mean, sure, fair enough, but like there's so much more to it than that. Um, And so I kind of had to figure it out on my own. And uh, this book is really everything that I learned during that time using my yoga and meditation practices and all kinds of other things to kind of find my way not only back to sexual desire, but really to a new way of understanding my sexuality and a new way of feeling connected in my body and feeling like I was kind of having color, not only again, but sort of anew. It's interesting because after trauma, we often talk about connecting to your body. And as a yoga instructor and a yoga practitioner, you probably are very much connected to your body, but that doesn't always mean that it's sexual or erotic. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. And, you know, sort of depending on who you ask, there are lots of spiritual traditions that really see sex as dangerous, as, um, you know, sort of like an energy that could disrupt your spiritual path. Um, and one of the things that really helped me as I was kind of going on this journey was, um, learning about Tantra as sort of a different perspective on that. Um, so, you know, a lot of the, one of the, um, ethical precepts of yoga is brahmacharya, which is usually translated as celibacy. Um, not always, but, uh, from a tantric perspective, it's more like, you know, erotic energy is the energy of the universe. It's the energy of creation. It's sort of how we all got here. And so it's something um, not to fear, but to really kind of work with and, you know, be ethical about for sure and channel into the right places. But it's really something that, you know, we want to honor. Now, can you walk us through some of these eight steps Mm -hmm. to reconnecting sexually after assault? Yeah, for sure. Um, So uh, the eight steps are sort of tongue in cheek because, uh, of course, there are many steps and, you know, everybody's going to have a different journey when it comes to this stuff. Um, But I just kind of organized my thoughts into the stages that that I thought made the most sense for sort of what I was going through. Um, So the first step is to survive. And um, one of the things that I think is really, really important for survivors to know 
is that, you know, however you deal with it is okay. Like, especially in the beginning, a lot of the time, you know, we're in denial, we sort of shut down, um, you know, sometimes, um, well, it's very common with trauma for there to be addiction or like addictive behaviors. Um, and I think it's really important not to feel shame about those things and just to really understand that you're surviving right now. Like something happened that your body and your mind are not able to fully integrate and understand. And so you need to deal with that however you need to deal with it. And if that means numbing out for a while, that's what it means. Um, but of course, if we get stuck in survival, then we can't thrive and we can't sort of move forward from there. So the second step is feel. Um, and the story that I tell in my book is really just about um, getting some advice uh, from someone to just lie down every day and breathe into your belly. And so I would try that and I would kind of lie there and just be like, what is this? What am I doing here? Like, what is this for? This is so boring, <laughs> you know. But then I would stand up and I'd start doing the dishes or whatever. And I would just be crying like I would just have tears rolling down my face. And I think that really taught me that my body and my mind are kind of on different paths when it comes to understanding what happened. Um, and just breathing into my belly was the first step in bringing my body sort of back online. Um, third step is rage. <laughs> you got to feel that anger. Um, that's another one that like, from a spiritual perspective, anger is also seen as a dangerous energy that's often like, oh, you have to be calm and content all the time and never express your anger. But you know, if you've been sexually assaulted, it's an injustice and it's totally reasonable to feel rage about that, to feel angry. And there are, you know, specific things that you can do with anger that are more generative of like connection and change um, rather than sort of violently having an outburst or something like that. Yeah, I think that's really important to give yourself permission to feel a range of emotions. And we talk about that often in our relationship as well as uh, like here on the podcast. And so some people might feel anger. Some people might feel a, a different range of emotions. Mm -hmm. Did you run into that in your research? Oh, yeah, absolutely. And I think for me, um, one of the central things that I am trying to express with this book is that all of your emotions are okay. And really, I think that coming back to a full sexual expression or erotic expression is maybe the better way to phrase it because... I really think erotic energy is not just about sex. It's it's about how you engage with the world and how you experience pleasure and also to a degree how you experience um, how you might want to change like in your own life. But also, you know, uh, if you want to kind of like fight against injustice, that's sort of where that energy can come from as well. So I think um, being able to access our sexual energy requires that we have access to a f our full range of emotions. And if we are numbing and we're not allowing ourselves to feel all of those things that we feel, we're, we're cutting off that erotic energy and then we don't want change. We don't really care what happens to us. We're not really going to move forward. Right. So we've got our first three steps. Yeah. And then <laughs> next step is forgive. And um, this one is kind of a tough one. I think a lot of survivors get really uncomfortable with the word forgiveness because it kind of implies that like, you know, you should let it go or forget it or, you know, let your perpetrator back into your life, which is not what I mean by forgiveness. Um, what I mean by forgiveness is really more so learning how to understand what happened to you with sexual assault, A, as a symptom of living in a misogynist culture, among other things, um, and also that the, the perpetrator is a part of that system as well. Um, and usually perpetrators are hurting too. 
Um, and so finding some compassion for that person, which doesn't mean you let them in. It doesn't mean you talk to them. It doesn't mean you give them anything. You don't have to interact with them in any way. But you have compassion and see them as a, just a human being, kind of just like you. And then that allows that person to no longer have power over you. Because I think before we get to that point of forgiveness is in the way that I'm talking about it, we're kind of stuck in that person always being a part of our nervous system, a part of our psyche. We're, they're sort of in, con in control of something about us. And when we can have that compassion, it um, breaks that bond. So it's really kind of about letting go. But in that chapter, um, the way that I talk about coming to compassion and understanding someone as a human being, I really talk a lot about patriarchy and misogyny and like how the the systems that we all participate in um, contribute to you know violence against women and and lots of other other issues that we have in our in our culture. Because again, a lot of survivors, when you have a sexual assault, you feel like this happened just to me, and it's this private shame that I have to carry around. It's a symptom of something much larger, and it's not just about that one experience or that one, you know, assault that happened to you. It's really something much larger than that. Right, and it, and it happens to so many people mm -hmm. so often Yeah, that I think we often turn a blind eye because it's, on one hand, it's so common, and on the other hand, we don't talk about it. Yeah, absolutely. Right? Because we, are, we feel shrouded in shame. We often blame ourselves. Is that something you talk about, letting go of the self-blame that often yeah. accompanies trauma? Yeah, the self-blame is huge. And, you know, um, it's really something that is, um, it's incredibly common for survivors of any kind of trauma to have that. Um, there is this real feeling of like, because this, like the fact of that this happened to me means it must be my fault. Like we have this weird kind of thing that we do in our heads where we just think the fact that it happened means there's something fundamentally assaultable about me or whatever it is that you think um, and it's really not the case um, and again you kind of have to come from that perspective of like uh, you know there are so many different reasons why you might have been in that situation that aren't your fault and there are so many ways that you might have responded to that situation again not your fault um, and really coming to a place of feeling like you don't have to carry this shame. This is, there's um, a survivor, Paul Gilmartin, who I always think of his phrase. Um, he talks about his, uh, he has a podcast called The Mental Illness Happy Hour. Um, and uh, he talks about his experiences of being assaulted on that podcast. And people ask him, like, how do you feel about being so open about this? And he says, that's not my shame to carry. And I just love that phrase because like, of course, why are the survivors carrying the shame? Like it's really the perpetrator's shame to carry. And that's something the perpetrators should be trying to deal with and, and figure out how to hold and, and change within themselves, which usually isn't what happens. Usually it's the survivor who's who ends up having to do all this work and the perpetrators don't even realize they've done something wrong sometimes. And so when you talk about forgiveness, is it forgiveness of self? Yeah, forgiveness of self is huge, absolutely. And there are specific things that are patterns when it comes to survivors. Um, and one of them is something called tend and befriend. Have you heard of that? So um, this, I think, is really, really important to know, um, especially when it comes to violence against women in general. And I'm not trying to imply that violence doesn't happen to men. It absolutely does. And that's mm -hmm. sort of another thing that we could talk about. But um, uh, Dr. Shelley Taylor started studying stress in female mammals around the year 2000. And um, 
all the stress studies up until that point had been done on male mammals. And so what they found was fight or flight, which is sort of the common stress response that we have. Like you're in a dangerous situation, so you try to fight or run away. Um, what she found, though, is that because female mammals often have young children or they might be pregnant, uh, running away or fighting just isn't going to be as effective. Also, for most mammals, females tend to be smaller, uh, maybe weaker. Um, so it's just not the best strategy. And so it still happens to female mammals, but they have this other stress response that's called tendon befriend. Um, and so tendon befriend, the tend part is grab that baby. Don't <laughs> run away without the baby. Um, and befriend is try to find allies to help protect you because you can't protect yourself. And so how this uh, plays out is um, the stress hormones that we get when we have fight or flight are adrenaline and cortisol. With tendon befriend, it's oxytocin, which mm. is the bonding hormone. Mm -hmm. And so when you're being assaulted by someone you already consider an ally, which is like 80 to 90% of the time, assaults happen with someone that you already know and might even trust, um, your tendency is not going to be to fight or run from that person. It's going to be, please placate, you know, give him whatever he wants so that he doesn't hurt you further. Um, and I think this this might even play into, you know, in a domestic um, abuse situation where, you know, the question is always like, why did she stay? Why did she stay? Uh, it could be ten and befriend. It could be, you know, she was trying to keep her ally close, like from an instinctual perspective, not a conscious, rational decision place. But like your instincts are trying to help you to survive. And the best way to do that is befriend uh, the people that are close to you. And if that person who is close to you is uh, attacking you, your instinct tells you to befriend that person. And so I think uh, all of that being said, a lot of survivors self-blame, self and this is something I felt for sure, like, why didn't I fight more? Why didn't I struggle? Why didn't I scream? Um, and learning about tendon befriend really helped me understand like, oh, because I was trying to survive and maybe I just had a different response to that in that moment because of the relationship I already had with this person. And maybe that's okay. And not something that I have to feel so much shame about. Right. I mean, there's so much shame around not only trying to placate for our own safety, which we do not only when we're being assaulted, but when we're being harassed Absolutely. or approached the way we'll, we will respond to people oftentimes isn't particularly authentic. You might want to tell them to screw off, but you smile or you laugh or you make it into a joke for your own safety. Mm -hmm. And then for doing that, we continue to judge you. Yeah. And so you're being judged by others. And so, of course, you judge yourself. So moving on from forgiveness, what's the next step? Um, the next step is either eat or pleasure. I can't remember which one comes first, but uh, we'll talk about eat. Um, so kind of a funny thing to bring up, uh, with sexual assault, but I found actually that food was a really, really useful place to think about, um, reconnecting to my body, experiencing pleasure, and even consent from the perspective of like, you know, if I eat when I'm hungry, I'm honoring my desires. And if I stop when I'm full, I'm honoring my internal signal of no. Um, and so, you know, for me, having a, I have a history of anorexia, so I have um, eating disorder sort of in my past. And so, and again, super common with survivors, a lot of people turn to food to, you know, numb the emotions or feel in control or whatever, which was definitely part of what it was for me. And so really healing my relationship with food was a really lovely way to start to heal my relationship with my body and explore pleasure and desire in a way that like, it's just me and my food. Like, you know, I don't have to do this with anybody else. Like it's something that I'm practicing every single day. 
Um, and so, yeah, I think it's really um, beautiful to be able to do that and also to understand like what food has to do with stress. Um, because trauma is essentially a stress problem. It essentially means that there's a constant low level or maybe high level, depending on your trauma of stress in your body that your body kind of can't sort out. Um, the stress cycle never completes when you're kind of in the state of like being traumatized. Um, and so, uh, when we are stressed, the energy in our bodies is going to our limbs. It's again, that fight or flight kind of thing where it's just like, okay, I'm, I'm in danger. I'm hypervigilant. I have to be ready for anything. And a lot of survivors, that's just like how you live every single day. Um, and when that's happening, all of that energy in your body is moving out of your digestive and reproductive organs, right? And so um, fight or, the opposite of fight or flight is uh, feed and breed. <laughs> so, you know, you, you can't fully uh, digest or procreate if you're under stress. You have to feel safe, right? And so, yeah, for me, playing with my food was... <laughs> a really important part of my recovery. And food and sex have so much in common in terms uh, yeah. of the chemical response. And we tend to f treat food a little bit more rationally than we treat sex. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and I think that there's um, a really interesting connection between food and intimacy um, that I talk about a little bit in my book. And I think there's something about um, like taking in food from the outside world means that you are taking something that's not yours and letting it enter inside of you. And like from my, you know, ex-anorexic perspective, I talk a little about this a little bit in the book, but you know, for me, when I was anorexic, I was a teen. And I think part of it really came from like feeling really attacked or um, objectified by even just men on the street. Like that was a really common thing that, that I felt when I was like really young, like probably started when I was 10 or something that you start getting this attention on the street felt very threatening, felt really scary. And rejecting food was a way to reject my relationship with the outside world. It was a way of controlling what was inside of me. Um, and and I mean, there was also the, the piece of it around body image and that feeling of like, if I shrink down as small as I can possibly be, then I will no longer be the object of this scary attention that I'm getting, right? Um, so... Yeah, I think there's something really to this food and love connection um, and just the association that we have as well with, um, you know, when we're babies and we're crying, usually we get food. So like we, we kind of get this um, association from a really, really young age that food and love are connected. And so for me, the rejection of food was related to a rejection of a certain type of uh, attention and, and love, like really relationship. <laughs> Um, and so letting that in, letting myself gain weight, letting myself eat, letting myself have that pleasure is really a part of me being in relationship with my environment and then theoretically other people. And so moving on from food to other types of pleasure. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So pleasure is the next step. Um, and pleasure is a topic that I love to talk about, partly because I think that what people often don't acknowledge about pleasure is that Genuine pleasure requires that we feel our bodies in the present, right? Um, and uh, when we have an experience of like, for example, like I think there's a difference between sort of eating like too much ice cream, just as the example, and having a really full mindful eating experience, just to go back to the food metaphor, when we're sort of overeating like something that's sweet, we're not actually in pleasure, we're in numbing. 
And so the numbing feeling is like the, the good feeling about that is the relief of not having to feel our feelings, right? But when we let ourselves be really fully pleasant, pre, uh, sorry, present with pleasure, uh, with pleasure may come anger, may come grief, may come fear. Like there are all kinds of emotions that might arise with that. And so when we're talking about sexual pleasure, especially sexual pleasure that you're sharing with another human being, that is a field of a lot of potentially scary emotions that might come up. And I think a lot of people have sex for numbing, not for pleasure in this way of just being like, let me get this over with, let me perform this, you know, whatever it is, but not allowing that full presence with the body and all of the emotions that live in there. Because if you're numbing any emotion, you're numbing all of the emotions you can't selectively feel. Um, And so really exploring and experiencing pleasure, sexual and otherwise, can be really confronting because you have to be in your body in order to feel pleasure. And being in our bodies is complicated. I appreciate that in this program or in these eight steps, you've separated sex from pleasure Mm -hmm. because you can have sex devoid of pleasure. And I would think that there might be a drive to do that after assault, to say, I can still have sex. Let me do this to show that I can still do it. We, We respond that way after grief or when we're dealing with grief we respond when there's been a been a big shift or transition in our lives and so we might have sex but it may not be for pleasure or Mm -hmm. connection yeah absolutely um so how do you bridge pleasure and sex so Mm -hmm. that they are experienced simultaneously Mm -hmm. yeah um so masturbation (laughs) is uh i talk about something in my book called masturbation meditation it's Mm -hmm. just what i'm what i'm calling it Um, and I think it's really nice to practice pleasure on your own, um, you know, before you share it with somebody else, because it is so much scarier when you do it with someone else. But I think that a lot of the time people masturbate also to numb. Sometimes it can happen that way. Um, and there are different ways of approaching, um, self-pleasure and, You can definitely do it for numbing reasons, but you can also do it in this way that really allows for that full experience of pleasure in your body. Um, And so, you know, just to explain it really briefly, when I meditate, just when I'm regular meditating, (laughs) um, the practice that I'm doing is I'm trying to just observe what's happening and be kind to whatever that is. So I'm trying to breathe, relax my body and just notice what's going on and work on not judging or getting too attached to the thoughts or um, trying to avoid any of the thoughts either. I'm just trying to be with whatever is going on in my body and my mind. I'm trying to be present. So if you are um, masturbating with that in mind, with a meditative intention, you're relaxing, you're breathing into your belly, you're paying attention to what arises, and The reason I think this is so important is because, you know, that's something that I really discovered when I was kind of going through this is like, I can't masturbate like this is, you know, if I try, memories come up from the assault, right? Or, or other kinds of emotions might come up that feel really uncomfortable for me. Um, Because if I'm, if I'm touching on pleasure, I have to touch on everything else too. And so I started uh, meditating with it. And I started just kind of okay, there's a memory, I'm noticing that that's there, and I'm just going to keep breathing and try to stay present. And sure enough, the memory fades into the background. And then, oh, there's grief. Whoa, like, that's a really intense emotion coming out of nowhere. Like, okay, I'm going to keep going. I'm going to keep breathing into my belly, keep relaxing. And then the, the feeling subsides. And I really started to have this experience of it with like, oh, I'm cleansing these emotions out of my body. Like, there are things that I'm holding 
like in that genital area, you know, in the way that we sometimes hold things in our bodies related to stress, like it totally makes sense. Um, and I'm actually moving them through when I let myself feel that way. And when I let myself have pleasure and presence and just breathe and, you know, stay present. It makes sense to me that you're talking about self-pleasure before pleasure with a potential partner. Mm -hmm. And you've described overcoming triggers and memories of an assault using mindfulness. Exactly. Yeah. Is that, was there anything else that worked for you when a trigger came up or when a memory came up during, during a sexual experience? Um, well, when I, if I, if it's self-pleasure, um, it's exactly that it's mindfulness. It's just like, stay present, be kind, stop if you need to stop, you know, don't, don't feel like you have to have an orgasm, like may or may not happen. Just like keep breathing. Um, pelvic floor breathing is something that, um, I think is really important for everybody. (laughs) Like even if you haven't been traumatized, um, because your pelvic floor, which is that little net of muscles that, um, supports the genitals and the reproductive organs, when you are under stress, it is it will automatically contract. That's something that just it will tighten right up <laughs> if you're under stress. And so when you're under a lot of stress or when you become in a habit of that, that area is just always holding. And when it's contracted, you know, the blood can't get there fully. Uh, you can kind of have all, all sorts of other issues with that. A lot of people, everybody thinks their pelvic floor is too loose, but a lot of us, it's actually the opposite. It's me. way too tight. Yeah, mm-hmm. me too. Yeah, for sure. Um, and uh, so pelvic floor breathing just means consciously trying to relax into that area and kind of feeling that on the inhale, the pelvic floor um, expands and descends a little bit when we're relaxed. And on the exhale, it lifts um, up in a relaxed way. So uh, it's it's not engaging anything. It's not contracting anything. It's not Kegels. It's just letting your belly be really soft and letting the breath go down to that place. Again, a lot of people uh, during sexual arousal or orgasm will tense up, everything contracts in that area. Um, And I find it incredibly interesting to try to do the opposite, to try to actually relax when sexual pleasure is happening, when orgasm is happening, just keep letting the breath go down there, though it can make your orgasms way, way more powerful, among other things. Um, But yeah, pelvic floor breathing, like even just in meditation, you know, if if it doesn't feel comfortable to do masturbation meditation, you can just do pelvic floor breathing and you get a lot of a lot of benefits from doing that as well. And you own Ocean and Crow Yoga Studio in Vancouver. So in terms of releasing the pelvic floor, are there any positions or movements that can help with that? So for example, I remember when I went to the pelvic floor therapist, because I have a hypertonic pelvic floor, they asked me to do squats and cat Mm -hmm. curls. Do you have any recommendations for releasing the pelvic floor as opposed to just contracting it? I think the breathing is probably the best thing to do. Um, and uh, a really good position to do the breathing in is lying on your back with your knees bent, okay. um, which can help release the psoas as well, which is sometimes related to pelvic tension. Um, and just really trying to focus on letting the belly get really big on the inhale um, and really just deflate softly on the exhale. Um, I think when you have a really tight pelvic floor, it can be really hard to do any yoga poses that really release it because it's such an unconscious thing that we're doing all the time, especially if you're doing like a vinyasa flow or something like that. Um, a more active sort of, uh, yoga practice with, um, specifically ujjayi breathing, which is the, the breath that we use in, 
um, a flow-based practice, usually it means uh, mula bandha is like always have your pelvic floor engaged, like always, always, always. Um, and so one of the things that I've been doing in my practice is not so much specific poses, but just really consciously being aware, when am I engaging my pelvic floor? When do I want it to be engaged? How am I contracting my core when I'm doing specific core exercises? And when I don't need to be doing that, can I re- breathe down into my belly, let the breath go down, relax, you know, all of that kind of stuff. So stretching and stuff can help. But again, another reason that I like the um, the masturbation meditation practice is that, um, you know, yoga can stretch my shoulders, my hips, my back, like all these places where I hold stress, but there aren't really poses like for your vagina, you know, so, yeah. so, you know, like it's for me, this masturbation meditation is a little bit like it's yoga for my vagina. You know? It's a new market, vaginal exactly. yoga. I'll start teaching workshops on that. <laughs> So you talked about using mindfulness to bring yourself to back to the moment when you're masturbating in order to overcome some of the triggers or upsetting memories. And what about when you're with a partner? Now, first of all, we know there's no pressure, as you mentioned. You don't have to have an orgasm. You can stop. It's not the last time you'll ever masturbate. But with a partner, if you are dealing with these traumatic memories, how do you approach that? How did you approach that? Mm-hmm, yeah. Um, yeah. So sex is the next step in the journey. And uh, it's really, for for me, it was about sex, but also about dating. Uh, How do I choose, you know, who I'm going to share this with? Um, Especially because the person who assaulted me was a close friend who I really trusted. You know, I kind of got mixed up with like, okay, how do I trust my instincts here? Like, how do I do this? Um, And so for me, a lot of it was not necessarily what's happening in the bedroom, but getting to know someone in a way where I'm looking out for certain um, red flags, and also green flags, looking out for uh, indications that this person might be somebody that I can trust. Um, And so, you know, there are a lot of places where consent is being, um, where consent can, can come into the equation that have nothing to do with sex. And I think we rarely talk about this, but you know, in general, do you respect the person that you're with? Um, You know, if someone wants to do something different than what you want to do, who's in control of that situation? How do you have that conversation? You know, like, do you want to go for dinner at this place or that place? Like, consent can be practiced even in those kinds of conversations. Um, And so a lot of it for me was really kind of watching how does this person interact with me? And for sure, like, if something happened where we would start, um, you know, even just making out or whatever, having some kind of... uh, you know, sexual suggestion of something, you know, is this, is this person listening with their body? Um, and if I say no, or if I tense up or pull away, how does this person respond to that? Um, and, uh, I actually have three rules for mindful sex. <laughs> so I can tell you those if you like. Um, the first one of course is be present. And this is again, more complicated than we often give it credit for. It's like, Are you in your body? Are you aware of what your desires are? Um, And one of the things that I talk about in the book is that we often think of sexual assault really as a woman's issue, um, but it's an everyone issue. And there are specific things to do with men that I think we need to talk about more. Um, And one of them is the way that uh, men are taught that their sexual desire is like voracious and violent and like must be satisfied or else like they'll explode or something. Um, And so a lot of men kind of get this message of like, oh, okay, I I have to be like this, you know, really sexual person and I have to have sex with as many people as possible and I have to be really good at pleasing women and I have to, you know, do all of this performance stuff. 
And a lot of men aren't even pausing to think, does this feel good for me? Like there's not necessarily a lot of pause and like, how do I feel right now? What do I want? Like there's not a lot of space in our culture for men to say no, or I don't feel comfortable with that, or I don't want that. Uh, Yeah, there seems to be a scarcity mentality too for men that you need to go for it when you can get it because they may not always be available. And not only does that eliminate or erase sexual agency and desire for women, but it puts men in a position in in the heterosexual context where they're supposed to always want it. And if they don't want it, what if they don't want it? Is it possible that you're on this date, you're attracted to this person, and you don't actually want to have sex yet? And you need to be able to give yourself as a man permission to also say no. Yeah, absolutely. And and women also need to get that too, like again, in a heterosexual context, but we all need to be practicing consent. It's not just about men honoring women's desires. It's also about women honoring like, does he want this? Is he into it? Like a lot of women, I think, just haven't even considered that. Like it hasn't even been a thought. Um, and just as a sort of a vague general statistic, uh, one in four women uh, are assaulted in some way. For men, it's one in six. And that's just reported cases. Like, I think, you know, a lot of men don't even ever say that something happened that they didn't want because that's not socially acceptable for men to say they don't want something. I don't think they even realize it themselves. I think, yeah. you know, I hear men come to me with trauma, but they don't describe it right. as trauma because they have been told that they should be and feel lucky. Yeah. that this person wanted them. Uh, in, in also including intergenerational and family incestual yeah. assault. When an older woman in the family has assaulted them, they don't see it as assault. And even those who do report are often shamed yeah. for not enjoying it, for not feeling fortunate enough to have run into this sexual experience men are and we we see it in popular culture young you know singers or pop culture stars talking about how they lost their virginity when they were 11 years old to an 18 year old babysitter right and so so young men are hearing well this is what you should want when in fact an 18 year old woman having sex with an 11 year old boy is assault yeah and traumatizing yeah and so they don't get the opportunity to work through that trauma yeah Absolutely. And there are fewer resources for men as well. Like there are quite a few resources for women in terms of like, you know, shelters and um, crisis lines and, you know, organizations that that do a lot to support women, which is awesome. Um, And there are a few for for men. One of them is called One in Six. Um, But uh, it's a lot harder for a man to reach out to those things. And I think it it can be this sense of shame, even more so than women feel to like walk into, (laughs) you know, an organization that, that is based on that and kind of say like, you know, my 18-year-old babysitter um, assaulted me um, because, yeah, it's supposed to be like a cool, fun thing that, that you experienced, but it's, of course, not going to be that way for every every man who has that. Of course. And in an 11-year-old or a 12-year-old, these are just these are just children. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. So when you're with a partner, do you, in your experience, and I know everybody's journey is going to be highly individual, do you talk about your assault before you engage in a sexual relationship? I do. Yeah, I do. Um, I know not everybody is comfortable with that, but um, I find it really useful for someone to know that because sometimes I do get scared, uh, especially like there's nothing that makes me more anxious than dating. (laughs) Like it really is something because of this experience, like going out on a first date, like I might throw up, you know, like it really, really scares me. 
Um, but I find if I talk about it, that helps me a lot. Like if I just let the person know what's going on and then I also can gauge like, how do they respond to that conversation? You know, do they listen and understand? Do they say, I'm so sorry that happened to you? You know, what can I do to make you feel more comfortable? Or do they get all weird and, you know, uh, shut down and, and not want to talk about it? Like that's a lot of really, really good information for me for whether or not I should be engaging with that person. And beyond the first date, if it's your first time having sex, is, is it something you remind them of or want them to be aware of in any specific way? Um, not necessarily. Uh, it depends on what happens. Um, I, I do feel like I have to be able to talk about it if I need to. If something comes up, I do have to feel like I can stop if I need to. Um, you know, something that happens to me sometimes is like, uh, I'll cry after. Um, and sometimes that's because like it just hit some grief somewhere um and you know just another one of the complications of pleasure um sometimes having really uh, pleasurable intimate beautiful sex um can bring up so much grief for what you didn't have uh before and for how long you didn't have that like it really can bring up that feeling as well um, and so, you know, if that happens, that doesn't happen to me super often, but like, if it does, I need to kind of be able to say like, Ooh, I'm having some emotions. Like, can you hold me right now or whatever? And I need to make sure that that person can do that for me. Um, and the, uh, I just said the first, but I'll tell you the third rule of mindful sex, um, is listening with the body. Um, and so this means that Again, both people are present in their bodies and how they feel, um, but also that they're you're paying attention not only to like verbally, am I saying yes or no, but um, what is my body doing? Are you are you watching for whether I'm tensing up or not, or, and what my breath is doing, and how my body is either leaning into yours or pulling away, or like you know, am I fully engaging in this, or have I sort of disconnected? Because um, there's a lot of information that you're getting sexually from another person's body. Um, that is, it can be a little bit like subconscious or unconscious sometimes. And I think if we just only focus on consent as being, did usually she say yes or no, um, we're missing a lot of signals that are coming from, from another place. And also I think it's really important to acknowledge that women have been conditioned to say yes to men, uh, whether they want what's happening or not. So sometimes even if there is a verbal yes, um, there might be a physical no happening. And I think that uh, both people need to be able to really listen with their bodies, with their own bodies, listening to the other person's body, paying attention to breath, tension, movement, all of that kind of stuff, and just staying present with the experience. Because you can feel, like if somebody disconnects from you sexually, if you're present in your body, you can feel it right away. I know that <clears throat> the idea of all of this awareness, this emotional intelligence that you're talking about, needing to have, do you... Do you find that people are, I mean, I guess because you bring it up at the beginning before you date someone or before you see someone that you can gauge whether or not they're going to be receptive to this idea? Because I would imagine that not having this conversation and then being frustrated with the person that you're seeing would just force you back into, you know, one of these steps and working through the process again. So obviously to each their own, but um, there's a lot going on that you have to be aware of are you angry do you do you find you're frustrated that you now have to be aware of all of these extra steps that you have to take mm, thank you for that question that's such a good question um no i'm not angry uh, i love it i think it's awesome um and one of the things that i really 
try to um, express through the book. And through the last chapter, the last step is love. And it's really about mindful loving as well. And like really being able to access some true connection and equality in a relationship, which is really hard. (laughs) You know, it's not easy to do that. Um, But one of the things that I really want survivors to know is that like, yes, the recovery process is hard. There are a lot of steps. It's difficult and it can bring up a lot of emotions. But on the other side of it, there is more pleasure. There is more joy. There's more connection. Um, I would not go back to the way my life was before all of this, like, you know, before the assault and I, and I kind of gained all of this awareness of what was happening with my body and everything, um, in my previous life, like I wasn't really having that great of sex before because I was performing with everybody else. I wasn't totally present in my body. You know, I wasn't really having like those deeply pleasurable experiences, but now, yes, it takes a bit more work to like meet the people who are willing to enter into that zone with me. Um, but, uh, when I can, uh, it is awesome. (laughs) You know, it feels really, really good. And I'm much better at sort of choosing people who can share that with me. And the other piece of it is, um, and I might just be sort of lucky in this way, but I feel like the, well, this is kind of mixed, but I feel like I've had uh, quite a few sexual partners over the last little while who they're, they're so receptive to what I'm, for lack of a better word, teaching them about how this process can be. Um, and, you know, I remember having a, an experience with a guy and uh, we were kind of getting into it. And he said, like, uh, what do you want me to do? I'll, I'll do anything. What's your fantasy? And I said, oh, I want to get to know who you are as a human being. And have, <laughs> like I said something like that, have this have this experience with you in the present. And he was like, oh, OK. And like it completely changed, you know, his experience. He was right into it you know, loved it. And it was a a really beautiful experience for both of us because I kind of said like, no, no, we're not doing performance fantasy. We're doing you and me present as human beings right here. And it's way more fun, you know, but you have to be, of course, willing to to go there because it can be kind of confronting. But I find like, you know, people are into it. (laughs) And it sounds to me like these steps, of course, they're not linear. Of course, there are different permutations for every single person. They're valuable for everyone. You're using them post-assault to Mm -hmm. deal with trauma but these are valuable approaches whether it's survival feeling rage forgiveness a range of emotions pleasure eating (laughs) yeah yeah. sex and love relevant to every single person and I, i appreciate your perspective that you wouldn't go back to the way things were yeah absolutely yeah and i mean you know the the book is of course uh oriented around sexual assault which is a really 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 common experience but even if you haven't been sexually assaulted trauma in general i mean it's pretty rare to have someone who hasn't experienced some level of trauma and again we live within these systems that are you know patriarchal misogynistic capitalist white supremacist like we we, we're kind of living in these systems that work to keep us disempowered and not present in our bodies and so doing this work whether you've been assaulted or not is going to be valuable because it kind of opens your eyes to like the wisdom in your body, the incredible pleasure that you can experience in your body and the very deep ways that you can connect with other human beings if you're willing to see them as another human being just like you and really opening up to that rather than seeing this person as like, oh, you play this role in my life. This is how this is supposed to go down. Here's how like we perform this act. Um, And it's really beautiful to be able to do that, I think. Well, thank you. Thank you so much for sharing your story and your wisdom and your insights and your journey, because I think so many people will learn from your journey. People can find out more at jcpeters.ca. 
and want eight steps to recovering desire, passion, and pleasure after sexual assault is available on Amazon. Yeah, absolutely. Thank you so much. Thank you for being here. Thank you for listening. This is the Sex with Dr. Jess podcast. We'll be back next Friday and every Friday with a new episode. You're listening to the Sex with Dr. Jess podcast. Improve your sex life. Improve your life.